The world of agriculture technology is vast and constantly evolving, with new innovations and companies emerging at a rapid pace. At AgTech Media Group, we understand the importance of staying updated and connected in this dynamic industry, and that's why we're thrilled to announce the launch of our new AgTech Company Directory, a comprehensive and user-friendly resource designed to help you navigate the complex landscape of AgTech innovators. More than just a list, it's a curated collection of companies leading the charge in transforming the AgTech sector from startups pioneering new farming methods to established companies adopting cutting-edge technologies. Our directory spans a wide range of leaders dedicated to advancing agriculture through technology. Whether you're a farmer looking for the latest in crop monitoring tools, an investor seeking promising ag tech startups, or a researcher interested in sustainable farming practices, ag tech directory is designed to cater to your specific needs. You can filter by sector, technology, size, or location to find exactly what you're looking for. To learn more and to claim your company listing, visit agtechcompanies.com. If you are starting a vertical farm and don't know where to begin or which technology would suit your needs, then reach out to the experts at Cultivated. As indoor farm brokers, they help connect you to the right technology and ensure your project is successful. Best of all, their service is free because they work on behalf of their partners. Visit cultivated.com to learn more. And that's spelled C-U-L-T-I-V-A-T-D.com or click the link in the show notes. My mindset on all of that was, you know, in learning that was that you're trying to fight a big war with a big army. So, you know, it's going to take a lot of big resources in order to pull that off and a lot more yeah. time. So I kind of came in with a more of a art of war mentality of basically developing multiple micro farms that were basically strategically placed close to where that demand yeah. was. Welcome to the Vertical Farming Podcast, weekly conversations with fascinating CEOs, founders, and ad tech visionaries. Join us every week as we dive deep into the world of vertical farming with your host, Harry Duran. Vertical Farming Podcast, Season 8, regular listeners, welcome back. I truly appreciate the fact that you listen in week after week and support the show and tell your friends about it. Folks are spreading the word on socials, in person, at conferences, and everywhere else you listen to podcasts, and it's truly something I really appreciate. So thank you. If this is your first time listening to the show, then I am certain you're in the right place. This is the one where we interview fascinating CEOs and founders of the leading vertical farming companies from around the world. I'm your host, Harry Duran. In case you missed last week, we had a great conversation with Jonathan Murray and dug into the world of mushrooms, which is something we haven't touched on since season one with Andrew Carter of Smallhold. Had a great conversation. Jonathan and the team at Adapt Ag Tech are doing really great things in the space, getting a lot of coverage. Their social is always popping, and it's a really lively discussion that we had on that episode. So make sure you check that out if you haven't already. Episode 96. This week, I'm excited to bring you a conversation with Alaric Overbay. He's the director of Greenside Up Farm. And in this conversation, we talk about the transformative potential of vertical farming and addressing food security issues in underserved communities. As many of you know who are regular listeners, this is a topic that's near and dear to my heart. And I'm so excited that I connected with Alaric at Indoor AgCon. He was part of the panel that was hosted by Nona Yehia. And there's a couple of other folks from there that are going to be on the show, so I won't say too much about that. But I was really excited. Alaric and his team gave us a tour of downtown Las Vegas, and we had a firsthand look at really the situation there and what it's like and 
having been connected to and living just outside New York City and being in low-income neighborhoods, experiencing firsthand what it's like to go into one of these bodegas or markets and all you see is really unhealthy food and you go to the produce section and it's virtually non-existent. And that was exactly the case with what we saw there in Las Vegas. So it's so exciting for them to give us a tour, to show us what they're working on, all the potentials for opportunities in that space to educate a community and to really increase access to fresh food, which is something that I'm so excited to hear and see. Alaric shares his insights on healthy eating habits and the innovative microfarm model they've developed at Greenside Up Farm. We talk about how education, community involvement, and partnerships with local organizations and grocery stores plays a vital role in creating a more equitable food system. I've heard firsthand from one of our previous guests, Ali Daniali of Harvests, how he's been able to partner with Alaric and team. And there's already initiatives underway. There's a couple of container farms that have already been installed there, which is amazing to see how fast things are moving there. So I'm really excited at how that's progressing and we'll be following that closely. We dive into the local feed purchase program and its impact on local farmers and the community and the importance of alliances with organizations like the Culinary Academy and Nevada Partners. Such a heartwarming episode. And really, when I think about all the opportunities for what vertical farming can do on small scales and large scales, this is something that's really exciting for me. And I never get tired about talking about it. I know you'll love this one. Remember, if you're enjoying this episode or you've enjoyed past episodes and you're overdue for a way to show your support for this show, take a few minutes, head on over to ratethispodcast.com forward slash VFP and send me that review. I would love to read yours out on a future episode. I get excited when I see them and I can't think of anything else that warms my heart to see that and share your enthusiasm. Ratethispodcast.com forward slash VFP. Remember, these always are always chock full of great takeaways. And as a listener, I want you to focus all your energy on our conversation. So don't worry about jotting down notes. You can find everything you need at verticalfarmingpodcast.com. We go to great pains to write full show notes, summaries, timestamps, key takeaways, anything mentioned in the show there. Don't forget to follow the links in our show notes for access to our vertical farming community on LinkedIn and also our newest site, cea.events. If you have an event coming up that you'd like to see listed, please go ahead. There's a form there. You can do it yourself and spread the word about your upcoming CEA event. Okay, before we jump into this uninterrupted conversation with Alaric, here are a few words from the folks that support this show. This year, Indoor Ag Tech is coming to New York City's Times Square, and it's bringing together the world's leading growers, retailers, tech providers, seed companies, and investors. Join us from June 29th to June 30th to meet, expand networks, and produce fruitful partnerships. The team has been gracious enough to provide listeners of this show with an additional 10% off of the registration. Simply use promo code VFP when you register and lock that in. And by the way, if you're on the fence, remember that early bird discount ends on May 11th. After a pivotal year for CEA, the summit will explore what's needed to ensure the industry can continue innovating and growing into a crucial part of the global agri-food supply chain. This year, Vertiform takes place from September 26th through September 28th at the Exhibition Center in Dortmund, Germany. For those new to Vertiform, it's the most significant trade fair for next-level farming and new food systems. Their international platform 
is set to showcase the latest developments in innovative controlled production systems for vegetables, salad crops, herbs, and microgreens, as well as sustainable fish, insect breeding, fruit cultivation, and medicinal plants. Vertifarm is shaping the future of vertical farming and new food systems. Reserve your ticket and learn more at vertifarm.de. That's V-E-R-T-I-F-A-R-M dot D-E. So Alaric Overbay, director at Greenside Up Farm, thank you so much for joining me on the Vertical Farming Podcast. Thank you. I appreciate that invitation. So we met at Indoor Icon and we got a lot of attention there because you were hosting as well. So I'm wondering if that was your first Indoor Icon conference? So it wasn't my first. It was actually, this was my second conference. The first one I was the first time it was in Las Vegas. I think 2019, and I was on a panel okay. then. And what was your take this year? Did you notice any difference than when you were you attended last time? The amount of people that were there, and I think that the crowd was very, the crowd was a lot more diverse. Mm, okay. And how did the panel get organized? I had a brief chat with Mary Catherine, who was on the panel with you as well. And and to be honest, that was like one of the highlights. I was talking to her about that, the panel, and it was almost like the last panel of the last day. <laughs> But uh, it was very well attended, and I think it talked specifically about the challenges facing people are facing on the ground. Because if you, I don't know how many of the other sessions you attended, but obviously a lot of it is like the big companies, the big issues, and the big opportunities. And so I'm wondering what your take was and, and how the panel came to be organized. So it, it actually started off on LinkedIn. Okay. Indoor Ag had posted something about the conference and about having, you know, people coming out and having a conversation. And I kind of responded with like, well, you know, everybody's not in that conversation. Okay. So Kyle Barnett reached out to me. I had known Kyle for okay. a few years kind of online. He reached out to me and we did a podcast and I had entered, you know, I kind of like, hey, you know, what do you think about doing, you know, a food desert yeah. You know, to really kind of, you know, talk about, you know, some of the true issues when it comes to food security and how vertical farming and CEA can address that specific problem. They ran it up. The t- and so apparently, yeah, obviously they ran it up the chain and, and they, it was, they put it yeah. together. And Nona, who's been a previous guest on the podcast, Nona, yeah, she's done some great work with her company as well. And so I think it went really well. Yes. And I'm wondering what the feedback was from folks that attended. It was great. We're still having, you know, very active conversations from yeah. the conference. So we've been in steady communication with several of the companies that were there. We've established several partnerships out of that and working on a couple of other partnerships out of that. So it was very beneficial to really have an opportunity to grab that level of individuals in this industry and to be able to take them around to see, you know, really what the industry I feel is designed to address. I was chatting with a friend of mine, Ali Danielli from Harvest. Sound like you're doing some work with Ali as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what, that's my guy right there. He, yeah. So let's rewind the clock back a little bit. Obviously you haven't, you didn't, I'm guessing you didn't start your career in indoor farming. It sounds like you had a couple different jobs leading up to it. So I'm wondering if you could give us a little of the maybe 60 second overview of how you made your way into this industry. So I'm from California, the Bay area. And so I've been primarily working in the IT industry. So in the early 2000s, I was doing data center optimization and cloud and backup recovery. So I was also a solution specialist for like large IT companies, helping them transition from like Excel into CRM okay. systems and introducing them to cloud and backup systems as opposed to like tape and backup. In 2015, moved to Dallas working for a company, Rackspace. I had a co-worker who lived in South mm-hmm. Dallas and I drove her home one day. I was living in like the Galleria area. 
And I drove her home one day, man, and he was like, going when I crossed the bridge at Martin Luther King and Malcolm X, it was like the whole world changed yeah. over there. There were no stores, you know, a lot of homeless, just a lot of people just on the corners, just, you know. And even though I'm from neighborhood or whatever, but in California, it's just very, it was just very yeah. different. I still, you know, I grew up with my grandmother who had a garden in her backyard. You know, I could walk down the street to my neighbors. There was always peaches and plums and kumquats and different stuff. So it just, there was just really, I never really even had a real understanding or relationship with the food mm. desert. So really going out there and seeing, you know, a food desert and then really wanting to kind of do research on the cause of those things. And so I just started doing a lot of research on food security, what happens to these communities, how it happens in these communities, and then what's being done to fix these yeah. communities. And in 2015, there was just no activity. There was no action. There was a city begging for other stores to come into these communities to try to solve the problem. And they weren't getting a lot of buyers. At the same time, I was introduced to vertical okay. farming through Tower Gardens. So I had a co-worker who was a part of Juice Plus in Tower Gardens. So that was my really my first introduction to vertical farming. And that's really kind of what pushed me into that industry where I was basically combining what I learned in the IT industry with data center optimization and with vertical farming and understanding that food desert is about optimizing where food is. Mm-hmm. And so that's how I kind of came up with, you know, really focusing on these areas that are particularly marginalized, struggled with grocery yeah. stores, struggled with you no know, access to produce and things like that. So I took it from a very educational perspective saying, hey, if you start to educate, start to train these communities on this new technology, they'll eventually start to develop their own solutions for how to fix their yeah. own problems. And how much progress did you make while you were still in Dallas? And can you talk a little bit about any of the initiatives you were able to put in place there? So in Dallas, 2015, they actually had ordinances out there that you couldn't grow food in your backyard or your front yard. I mean, there was an ordinance against it. And you couldn't grow food at your yard or your home and then resell it at a farmer's market or anything like that. Come to find out, this was almost a standard around the country around that time. And so a lot of the municipalities then started in early 2015 through the USDA program. They started opening up urban garden spaces urban farming spaces, you know, and so they started, but what you had was because there was no structure to it, you had an influx of everybody now want to jump in and do community gardens. Yes. So yeah, now you just had ridiculous community gardens popping up in schools and neighborhoods and every vacant lot that you could find. And in Dallas, you had these communities now, people in these communities fighting over this same little pool of uh, money that was now being offered for urban yeah. farming. And so but there was no real communication in between. It was like, hey, I want to do this. There was no system yeah. to it. What we did is we took advantage of the fact that they came out with that. And I focused on the vertical farming side. So me and my business partners, we basically quit our jobs mm-hmm. at Rackspace. We got us a two-story loft in downtown Dallas in Deep Ellum. We moved in together. And we started growing on the rooftop. Okay. So we wind up setting up one of the first rooftop vertical farms in okay. Texas. And working directly with the schools, when me and my partner separated, I actually stayed in Deep Ellum and I got another location down the street where I had about a 4,000 square foot building storefront where I was doing both vertical farming. I was curating art and then I also had a yoga studio. And so I had all this in one. And it was really just kind of, you know, 2015, there was just not a lot of people in this space. And it was almost, you know, there's probably no black folks in this space at all. You know, during that time, you know, 
And so kind of being in Deep Ellum, just really kind of just making connections. And you know, we hosted different types of events. I used to be doing down there. I used to do the wine walk. I used to do salad parties, you know, different things where people came in, cut off the towers, had a salad, had a okay. wine. So it was really, and then combining that with the yoga and the yeah. health and all of those different things. But again, it was just a little too much too sure. soon, you know. So it was a challenge with, you know, developing the workforce and training and really kind of getting it to a commercial level where it was actually viable. So I wound up moving to mm-hmm. Las Vegas after okay. that. But I just seen that Las Vegas was a food desert yeah. within a desert. Yeah. You know, I was like, well, shoot, if anybody got a problem with food, Las Vegas do. So let me go on over here to Las Vegas and, and pitch the same thing okay. out here. And so that's how I wound up getting in Las Vegas in 2017, 2018. When you arrived in Las Vegas, having had the experience of what happened in, in Dallas and what you learned there, were you clear that this is that was going to be the next step for you and that you still wanted, you still felt that this model was viable, that vertical farming was the future and this is something that you wanted to continue doing? Absolutely. Coming to Vegas, it was even harder than being in Dallas. <laughs> because, so at least in Dallas, you know, there was some type of muscle memory mm-hmm. when it comes to agriculture. Oh, okay, yeah. You know, so you have to think, you know, Dallas, you know, in the southern states, you know, there's a history of yeah. farming and agriculture. There's land. So you have people who had, you know, farmland in their families for yeah. hundreds of years. They just didn't want to do no farming no more. Coming to Las Vegas, this was a place where there's no history of agriculture like whatsoever yeah. in southern Nevada. There's no history of any type of commercial farming as far as food. You know, they do grain and cows and stuff like that. But when it comes to growing their own food, there is no history mm-hmm. of it. So there's no so even the people who were coming here from other states, that generational gap between farming and yeah. today was so big that you know you kind of had to start from sure. scratch, you know, and you couldn't start from scratch in the <laughs> dirt. So you have to start from scratch indoors, yeah. indoors, you know. And so you know, I peddled around, you know, what I'm saying like an old salesman, you know, what I'm saying selling like you know, if I was a, a used car salesman, I'm walking around with a tower on my back. You know, pretty much, you know, and going to different locations and restaurants and hotels and city speaking at the city. Like, hey, you guys might want to look at vertical farming. It's yeah. coming, you know, and this was 2018. Yeah. So I got some towers in some different places. I met up with my business partner who had a nonprofit called Youth Outdoor Unity, who was already working in some of the schools. And so I introduced the vertical farming to him and we started putting these around in the schools and stuff like that, getting attention. But still, it was a very slow moving yeah. process. And then at the same time, you had companies like Urban Seed and Oasis Biotech who had just popped out here. And Urban Seed and Oasis Biotech were huge failures, yeah. you know. And so it left a bad taste in, it kind of left a bad taste in people. For, for folks that may not so know about those companies and to whatever extent you know anything that may have happened, if you had to kind of look back and see, what were they trying to do? And in your opinion, why do you think they did not succeed? There was a lot of hype going around in the industry around this time, you know, 2017, for vertical yeah, farming. It was hip. It was a new thing. So, you know, it was taking community gardens to the next yeah. level, but trying to apply an economic model to it and then trying to, you know, but they were targeting the strip. So they're targeting, you know, casinos, yeah. you know, high end. So, Early in this stage, you know, you know, the price point and the operational costs were ridiculous yeah. at this time. So they couldn't get under $16 for a head of lettuce, you know, so that gives you a very small market yeah, to operate. Yeah, some fancy lettuce. You know, 
Yeah, you know, and but my guy Jim, one of the things they came out and said is that the reason that we're here is because Las Vegas can afford our yeah, price yeah, points. Yeah. The strip can afford our yeah. price points. But that didn't really turn out to be that case. You know, we look at the large operational costs of that and then a lot of the logistical issues that kind of went into that. That's what they were running mm-hmm. into. Workforce yes. not able to get a you know a viable workforce because again, this is a very new yeah. industry. So it's not something that you go to school yeah. for. And then nobody had created any ITT technical institutes for people to go to sure. school for real quick so you can get in the industry, you know. So that was the biggest thing. So now what you're doing is that you're asking for regular wage workers to come in and do kind of like some high tech ag mm. work, but they're not trained enough to be able to do it. And you're not training them to basically pay them enough to be okay. able to do it. And so those were some of the problems with both of those companies. Oasis Biotech, you know, was at one point in time the largest vertical farm in the wow. country, you know, and it was a matter of them kind of being too big too yeah. fast. You know, and one of the other things with a lot of these organizations, I think that they miss some of the other fruits of indoor ag that it can, some of the other locations and spaces that have a lot of different opportunities that because of the capital investment, you know, saying and the investors in these organizations, they're basically pushed to get a quick return, yeah, definitely. you know, and so that's what they focus on. So there's, it's not about really solving a problem or what the community might need and how this might be able to serve, you know, saying, a larger, you know, uh, problem is about how do we immediately fix the fact that, hey, there's a demand for produce. Everybody's on this organic thing and, you know, and now Monsanto's in. So everybody's trying to fight against, you know, an alternative to what Monsanto's doing. So it was all knee jerk reaction, yeah. you know, in, in the industry real quick. Like, ooh, let's, let's build these things real quick and let's get them out yeah. there real quick. My mindset on all of that was, you know, in learning that was that you're trying to fight a big war with a big army. So, you know, it's going to take a lot of big resources in order to pull that off in a lot more yeah. time. So I kind of came in with a more of a art of war mentality of basically developing multiple micro mm-hmm. farms that were basically strategically placed close to where that demand yeah, was. That makes sense. And so that's always been my model, like basically keeping it small, keeping it manageable, a small workforce that you can easily be deployed or redeployed or moved, and, you know, saying so it made them, I think it would make the industry a lot more agile. So the current project is Greenside Up Farm, and then there's also Vertical Life Farms. Are those two different organizations? Same organization. So those are my evolutions, yeah. how I've evolved. So I started off with Dallas yeah. Urban Farms in Las Vegas, in Dallas, and then when I split for them, I'd been operating Vertical Life Farm, and then I had a nonprofit called The Farm, which is, The Farm is Food Access and Reclamation okay. Model. So like that's the core of basically reclaiming the food mm. industry. Talk a little bit about that idea. Like what made you come up with that and what did you get accomplished with that initiative? For a lot of these communities, it's really starting off with the education, yeah. understanding what food access is and then how do you start to mm. reclaim that and developing a model around that. So it's not just saying, hey, you, know, you put a farm over here, you put a grocery store over here and this food yeah. desert is going to sure. fix the problem. And that's what a lot of people think from the outside looking in. Oh, they just need more grocery stores. That'll fix it. Oh, they just need a farm over there. That'll fix it. Not understanding that, you know, that these problems didn't happen overnight. You know, that's the thing. So they're not going to fix overnight. It's not going to take a one, you know, a one time fix all, you know, solution. It's the same thing where if it took 10 years to solve this problem, it's going to take 20 years Mm -hmm. to fix this problem. You know, and it's easier done taking this in small chunks where you look at first, 
the training and education and really doing community development and community yeah. involvement, you know, to really introduce the community to a whole different way of eating yeah. and feeding themselves. Yeah. So, you know, because a lot of these communities have been trained to eat a sure. certain way. There's certain behavior patterns, there's certain buying habits, all of those different little demographic issues go into really kind of solving that. And I just, the industry itself hasn't looked mm-hmm. at that. Why? Because it's not the industry's problem. Yeah. So if you don't have a problem being hungry, if you don't have a problem with a food desert, if you don't have a problem being food insecure, then that's your solution isn't going to be designed. Yeah. Right, right. So your solution isn't designed to solve that yeah. problem. Although it has the ability to easier, you know, saying and with less money than it does to want to tackle this whole, you know, global hunger and the year 2050 and, you know, and we're going to need a land mass the size of, you know, South America. That song is kind of, yeah. you know, it's, on, it's, on it's a mantra that's out there now. Yeah. So that's the mantra yeah. out there. So everybody hops on that mantra. But when it comes to like really looking at, look how much money you have reached. Look how much money you've gotten yeah. in this industry over the last, you know, five sure. to 10 years. It's been a ridiculous amount of money that's been poured into yeah. this industry, you know, and with almost zero return on investment. For a lot of them, yeah. <laughs> and they're okay with that. And for us, you know, I always looked at it like, man, you know, man, you did 10 million, you know, for this company. I could have did 10, $1 million yeah. farms. Yeah. And it had a much larger impact. And so that's really the perspective that we kind of look at it from is that, you know, it's really like, how do you start to allocate those resources? How do you start to allocate funds? And what is the actual objective? Is the objective to actually solve a problem or is it just to make money? Yeah, that's a good point. I want to touch a little bit about this idea of, Almost like not knowing any better. And for a lot of these communities, for people that grew up in food deserts, I grew up in just outside New York City and I've been in New York City. And so, you know, I'm familiar with like the bodega at the corner and just like, yeah. you know, how you, yeah. you go in there and you basically can, you're not going in there for like the freshest produce and stuff. And, and at least there you have some access to some of it. But it's also like if you're not educated on nutrition, if you're not educated on the value of, fresh produce and nutrients and all this stuff like it literally starts at the home and where you know what you were given access to growing up like i mean the human body is very resilient because i've made it through many happy meals and lucky charms and <laughs> so the body can survive <laughs> yeah. but that's not necessarily we're not getting you know the nutrition we're getting what the marketers have strategically placed in the shelves at the cheapest price point you know one of the things that stood out for me when we, we took a tour of the one of the groceries in, in las vegas was a blue sunkist i didn't even know they made blue sunkist i was like what? <laughs> come on like is this like the best thing? and when you think about the irony that the brand name is called sunkist like oh it's you get this vision of yeah. these oranges and like in florida yeah. it's a blue carbonated drink i was like so far yeah, from very it. far yeah. from it so talk a little bit about like in our neighborhoods i'm latino myself and just you know thankfully had more as much as I was the American way in terms of the food when I was growing up as well. Thankfully I had still some of my cultural food, my rice and beans and like the, the appreciation for that. But can you talk about the importance of how, you know, like you said, you could drop the fresh produce in the neighborhood and you can create the relationship between the market. But if the people that walk in there on a day-to-day basis, don't see that that is important in their own lives. You know, that's really where it starts. Yes, absolutely. So like 
when we took the trip over to Mario's, one of the groceries, well, either one of the grocery stores, one thing you didn't see in there, and this is the fastest moving product in grocery stores across the country, is packaged salads. Neither one of these locations yeah, carry those yeah. things. Because, again, it kind of goes back to, like you said, about access and habits, cultural reference. You know, one thing that, especially out here, that you notice about, you know, the Hispanic community is that there's still a lot, a very close connection to its culture. Yes. The culture itself and the food itself is primarily vegetables are used to season everything yes. in Hispanic dishes. For African Americans, for example, it's been a little different. So, you know, there's this habit, soul yeah. food. Soul food is the staple, you know, saying of that barbecue ribs and collard greens and mustard greens that you cook for three yeah. hours so by the time you eat them they ain't got yeah, no nutritional yeah, value yeah. left so that habit and that's the muscle memory when it comes mm -hmm. to food so that's when i was saying about ag you know about the educational piece that's why like even we do is that we're probably the only company i ever seen really doing like collard greens on yeah, vertical farms yeah, yeah. and we don't let them grow so big for example because they don't understand that you know it would be think that big is better but the reason that they let them grow so big is because you had so many people they had to feed with just, you know what I'm saying, sure, a plant, sure. for example. So let me let this plant get as big as it can, you know what I'm saying, and I could chop it up and I could feed several sure. people, you know what I'm saying, now with this big yeah. collard grain. But what that does is that, you know, you start to add in more salt, you mm. add in oils, you add in fats, you add in all these things that now take whatever little nutritional value is left yeah. in that plant is now completely smoked yeah, out. Yeah, yeah. And so that's created health issues. Mm -hmm. In these yeah, communities. Of course. And that's one of the things I discovered in Dallas, man. When I started doing the research on the amount of diabetes, fibromyalgia, just all the different diseases and ailments, mental issues, and everything that was related to food and what they're putting in their body and what they have access to putting in their body and the habit of taking what they have access to and even making it worse than what it is normally and making it even worse and then ingesting that into your body. They had the highest rate of amputees from diabetes oh. in Dallas. Oh. <laughs> so now I'm looking at this from a very community overall, a high level community issue yeah. now. Now I'm saying, okay, you have this community. They don't got no good food. They have, you know what I'm saying? They're already sick from the food that they've yeah. been eating. Now they're being hobbled. They don't even have the means, you know, physically to get up and do anything different now. Now they're completely dependent on the system. And, you know, and then the mortality rate is extremely yeah. high. You know, so they're eating to die as opposed to eating to live. And that's what I started to see in these communities. And I'm like, there's no way you can change that until they change what they're eating. Because now you're past diabetes, for example, these numbers in diabetes was already ridiculous. But now you got genetically passed down, you know, childhood yeah. diabetes, which that term itself doesn't make sense because diabetes is something that you get from eating a certain way over a certain period of time and your body saying, ah, you didn't mess me up. So now you have kids being born with that. Now that's like a, that's a ridiculous yeah. problem. Now it's a mortality problem. It's like, hey, you know, now you're saying if you start to look at that on a timeline, you really start to look at that for a community, like that community is dying, like yeah. literally. And so that's been my focus. Like, you got to come in and you got to do something different. Yeah. And so coming in and doing something different and taking it from a very, from the education to the economic. Like, you can't get one without, you can't do it without making it economic for the people in the community.
So talk a little bit about Alaric about how you the origins of Greenside Up Farms and also the partners that you're working with now and then what the organization looks like. So Greenside Up was a combination of seeds that I planted out here in Las Vegas previously with my business partner who was running a nonprofit called Youth Outdoor Unity. And then the experience that I picked up in Oklahoma over the last three years operating focused urban farms. So one of the things out here that happened in Vegas with me was and I reached out to a guy out in Oklahoma City, Northeast Oklahoma, who had just shut down a large grocery store, making it the 10th largest food desert in the country. And so he was getting ready to build another grocery store. I reached out to him on LinkedIn, like, hey, I got an idea for you. Instead of just building another grocery store, how about we install a vertical farm in there? He liked the idea. Flew me out there to Oklahoma. We had some conversations with him and his wife. They had a chain of grocery stores. They actually built two grocery stores from the ground up that are like state-of-the-art grocery stores with you know thermodynamic heating yeah, and all yeah. types of stuff. <laughs> just bad grocery store. And so they were in the process of designing a new grocery store. And I introduced this to them where it's like, hey, it's not about just even growing the food, but I want to come in and I want to be able to train the community on this type of agriculture, this type of farming. This food will now go directly on the shelves in the store. So, you know, for you as a grocery store, I'm helping you as far as on a lot of your logistical issues when it comes to sourcing and waste yeah. and all of that. That is just to help eliminate that. At the same time, it's giving you the opportunity to introduce a better quality of produce than your competitors are basically offering at Whole Foods yeah. and Sprouts in this particular yeah. community. So now what that also does is that's like, hey, all these people who were previously going over there to Whole Foods and Sprouts, I'm like, ah, you guys over there are growing better produce at a better price. I'm going to go over there yeah. and get that. So now you're creating more economics in that community by bringing outside money sure. in. So that was the model. Unfortunately, the owners came down with Lyme oh, disease. No. Yeah, so got real sick, you know, project stalled, and they wind up selling all their grocery stores. So I wind up doing it like, instead of just picking up and leaving, which is what I wanted to do, I was already kind of invested in the community. Okay. So I was already oh. there, you know, so I was still, you know, wanting to say, hey, let's grow some food. So I actually wind up buying and picking up a five acre farm out there where I had a regular farm, like in the soil, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, it was an organic farm and it had, it was already an operating farm. They just didn't have the manpower, the people to operate it, but it, it was five acres that had nine 30 by 100 high tunnel hoop houses okay. on it, a field of strawberries, okra patches, a little bit of everything. So that gave me an opportunity to really kind of understand farming from two aspects. I didn't have any experience you know, with that type yeah. of agriculture, you know, so it was, but I needed to understand both the soil aspect, the challenges of farming yeah. that way, whether it's being in the soil or being in the greenhouse, the amount of manpower it took, you know what I'm saying, to really operate mm -hmm. that. And it was ridiculous. It was ridiculous. And also the know? dependency um, on the environment, right? And the conditions. Yes. Oh, yeah. And so being in Oklahoma, I had ice freezes and snow and just my lost whole crops and stuff like that. And it's like, you know, I didn't just lose them. I got to go clean that stuff and pull oh, yeah. it all up and then redo the soil and all. So it was yeah. grueling. <laughs> you know, I had three of the houses that were just all indeterminate tomatoes. And I couldn't walk 50 feet in there without picking 50 pounds. Wow. So I needed a lot yeah. of people to be able to pull that off. So that gave me a good understanding of the labor intensity that it took for operating sure. the farm. And so having that knowledge base and then combining that knowledge base with understanding, you know, under the controlled environment in the vertical farm industry allowed me to kind of come back out here because now Vegas was yeah. right. Now, you know, for the last two years, 
that's all they've been talking about out here is vertical yeah. farming. And, you know, now they want to hop on this whole vertical farming thing, but they had no idea how yeah. to do it. Nothing like so, a pandemic to shake things up, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. So coming out of that, their whole mentality changed because now it's like, hey, you guys import 98% of all your produce. You got the fire marshal saying that, hey, if I-15 shut down, Las Vegas will have three days worth wow. of food left. So now, again, it's that knee-jerk reaction sure, to sure. a problem. And so now these ideas pop up. Oh, let's drop a shipping container over here. No workforce. Yeah. No understanding of, you know, heat loads and, you know, environmental factors. So it's like, yeah, we can just drop it over here and work and just flip yeah. a switch. And that's what they've been looking for. But that's not what happens. So that's kind of where they're at. So I got involved with some of the projects out here that's been initiated by the city of Las Vegas, city of North Las Vegas, and a lot of these different mm-hmm. nonprofits when it comes to specifically focus on these food areas. And then the fact that the USDA and ARPA Monday got a lot of funding that they did have to do something mm-hmm. with in this area. So I got on the committee to kind of be a sounding board to kind of listen through and kind of help guide through some of the process. And so that's kind of what we've been doing out here now is really kind of helping with the city with our initiative and really kind of get the city to kind of focus on what we're doing on the grassroots okay. level. Because initially, you know, a lot of the stuff is being initiated out here not by people in the community but by yeah, the businesses so the two shipping containers that you've seen yeah. over there know who paid for those mgm mm. so mgm bought those shipping containers and put them over there because they wanted access to sure. their products so again that sucks about that gives that's where that demand yeah. is. how's that project willing work? to put that type of money talk a little bit about for the benefit of the listener those containers referring to you know, a little bit about what that program is about so what they did over there, there's an area that's called the historic west side of okay. Las Vegas. And this is actually where a lot of Las Vegas mm-hmm. started. But also during the 60s, it was also legalized segregation. Yeah. So when you start to have people like, you know, Etta James, Sammy Davis Jr., part of the Rat Pack, they could perform on the Las Vegas side inside the casino. But as soon as they were done, they had to go back to the other side yeah. of the tracks. They had to go back to West Las Vegas, where, you know, you didn't have the same housing and everything like that. But what wound up happening is that that side of town kind of developed its own Las Vegas look. So that's where you had like the first, you know, integrated, you know, casino, which was the Moulin Rouge. That's where that started off at. Sammy Davis had boarding houses over there and other artists used to go over there. So it was a bustling, thriving area at one point in time. Then people just started moving away. What happens in these areas, you know, other businesses come in around. So... There's been this 100-year plan about revitalizing that area because now it's, the, it's an eyesore for the yeah. state. I mean, it's one of the worst, you know, kind of areas, you know what I'm saying, and to be buttoned up right against the yeah. strip, like a song's throw. It's like, hey, we might need to start to work on that problem over here. Yeah. Now. So they have this whole plan starting off with James Gay Park and Jay Street and some of those other areas where they're looking at how to start to revitalize them. The James Gay Park was a small strip. It's about five miles on the side of the pit, uh, right next to to the freeway they shut the park down probably five years ago because it just got overran by homeless mm. and yeah. crime so they wind up gating up the park that's why there's a big gate around the park nobody can go yeah. to the park so their plan was or is to develop that into almost a farming corridor so two shipping containers with the first installation yeah. the second installation is supposed to be a cooperative grocery store and then the third installation it's supposed to be a three-story, multi-use vertical farm through vertical harvest. So by oh, no. yeah, okay. 
So that's been the plan. How that works and where that's going is it's yeah. a challenge. And it's a challenge. And so we're trying to help the city kind of work through those challenges by, again, being very kind of grassroots and kind of looking at, you know, how do you do this where you incorporate more of the community into that development where it doesn't feel like a gentrification. Sure. Yeah, that makes sense. So talk a little bit about present day and the work that Greenside Up Farm is doing and what the current plans and the roadmap looks like. So one of the things we wanted to bring out of that conference and one of the reasons for that tour was that I had this idea of everybody knows, you know, what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. <laughs> and it has kind of a negative sure. connotation now. Yeah, you yeah. Know? But I looked at that as saying, hey, you know, here's an opportunity for the industry to actually sit down somewhere for a minute and actually solve yeah. a problem. Bring your resources. If we was able to bring, because we're all in this together. So if we was able to bring just a little bit of our resources together to look at, hey, how do we address mm -hmm. this problem? How do we collect the data on addressing yeah. this problem? If we had the data and the information on addressing an actual problem, we could then, you know, you can scale yeah. that. You can apply that to other industries. You can apply that to other areas, other scenarios, because now you have an actual working model. And I don't think there's one system that fits yeah. all. I think it's a combination of utilizing all of these systems and really using that to address the issue of access to mm -hmm. food. Because there's a very economic aspect of that that a lot of them have missed. And so what we've done is looked at first developing almost a micro scale micro farm model. And then alongside that, we're developing the workforce development and education model along with it. And alongside of that, we're addressing attaching the community development yeah. model where it's educating the community on what's coming, what's happening, educating the community on some of the health things. So we work with a lot of very, we've made very strategic partnerships, both on in the food industry. So we're here at the Culinary Academy that's right across the street from us. Nevada Partners is a workforce development STEM mm -hmm. center, community development organization. Which we've got a tour of during that as well, yeah. Yeah. So they offer a lot of different programs in here. So everything from housing to jobs to health. And so that allowed us to kind of put ourselves in a position where we can actually display what healthy food means to yeah. the community from a very community standard, from a community output sure. area. So they're already doing output. And so all we did is included the fact that their whole conversation when it comes to the health problems and everything like that is all focused on food yeah. security. And so my whole thing is like, hey, that's nice and all, but at some point you have to start to have the conversation about securing the food. Mm. So that's kind of where we're at now. We're saying, hey, food security, you've already identified the problem. We can have a conversation about the problem over and over sure. and over again. So now let's take a piece of that and say that, hey, here is over here. Now we want to start talking about how do you start to secure the food to be able to solve the problem? Yeah. Because now once you have, it's like, I don't know, it's like on one side you have, you know, COVID, right? Which is the yeah. food problem. Then over here you have, you know, Pfizer. And so here is the solution. Here's the inoculation. <laughs> Here's your booster shot for your problem over here. You know what I'm saying? You just have to now have access to it and market it properly and say, this is why you need to get this shot. This is why you need to get this food. This is why when you're talking about, you know, women, infant and children and maternal issues when it comes to food security and WIC, the biggest part of that problem program is how do you get healthy food to sure. those young, to yeah. the kids? How do you create more access yeah. to that? 
how do you start to eliminate a lot of those barriers? For example, you know, and a lot of these programs are extremely subsidized. Yeah. And so the industry doesn't necessarily see that because again, it's not their problem. Here we see it like, you know, we're in, we got a, you know, we're part of a, a Nevada grant that they got that came from the USDA called the local fee purchase program where, you know, almost you know, $680 million of important to these states for them to do nothing but buy produce from local mm-hmm. farmers. So Nevada has you know, 6 million or something like that to buy produce from mm-hmm. local farmers. So the whole point of that is to give some economic foundation to local farmers to say that, Hey, you just grow it. Yeah, we'll buy it from you. So now you don't even have to go worry about chasing it down at the store. Matter of fact, we won't just buy it from you. We'll pay you to grow it. We'll pay you to process it. We'll pay you yeah. to store it and we'll pay you to deliver it. So that's just the, the type of boost that you need, especially for an, an environment that hasn't had that experience and is struggling to figure out a way to get this project off the ground and up and running. Right. And, and sometimes those incentives are exactly what you need to let the bigger companies, the MGMs of the world, like figure out like how we partner with this. And if you really are, you know, all these casinos, you know, Las Vegas is their lifeblood. And if they really believe that, you know, it's almost like what gets grown in Vegas should be eaten in Vegas. (laughs) Maybe that's exactly, but it's also like, if you really yes. believe and you're not only benefiting from all the folks that are coming in, but also give back and see how you can support the community. That's literally just you can, all you have to do is look out of these windows when you're in these hotels and you see you don't have to look too far to see these communities. You know, it's not like they're out of sight, out of mind. I think it, there's a lot right, of right. that still needs to be in, in, involved in an education perspective. I'm wondering if you could see like where's the progress at now from an education perspective at the community level. I, I did see some students in the in the center when we were there and just kind of thinking about this as a, a trade or this as at the because it starts at the family level, right? And it's like, yes, well, how do you absolutely. educate them that nutrition is important, that fresh produce is important. And obviously sometimes it's the kids that educate their parents sometimes on what the future looks like. And I'm wondering how much progress you feel has been ma- being made there. There's some progress being done. We've been, again, from where we're at, just really kind of networking with both the school system, networking with you know, juvenile facilities, and then, you know, directly what we're doing as far as like with Nevada partners. It's been a challenge in trying to get that into these systems where they, you know, because there's just, a, there's not a lot of people out there to yeah, teach. It. Yeah. And so that's one of the challenges. And then, you know, really kind of getting into the community and not just teaching it, but giving them an access to where to get it from. You can teach me about it, but then, you know, I still have no transportation yeah. issues, you know, when it comes to getting to the nearest grocery store, for example. So in that area, that grocery store is not frequented by the people. Like out of that whole community, they drive past that store to go to the Walmart that's almost five mm-hmm. miles away because they don't have enough of the resources. So it's not just the store, but it's the transportation, you know, to get sure. to the store. It's the education arm, what to pick, you know, what product, not just that, but how do you prepare yeah. something yeah. different? So a lot of them don't even know how to prepare. You know, you give them some squash, they're going to look like, hey, what I'm, what I'm supposed to do with that? I give you some kale. These aren't kale communities. <laughs> these aren't microgreen communities. Aren't you know what I'm saying? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, these aren't arugula communities, man. So it's like they don't, when you say, hey, this is what we're doing and this is what we're producing, you know, you're putting that out there. It's like, okay, what they got to do with me? So again, that's where that education and having grassroots 
people going out there in the community. Like we would do, we took some collard greens we grew and we took them over there to Mario's and had his chef cook them. And then we did, you know, a food sampling like they do That's at Costco. Great. I love that. Yeah. And we was able to get these people to come through there and taste this and be like, oh, Mario didn't cook. These ain't Mario's greens. <laughs> you know? They're like, yeah, these ain't Mario. I haven't tasted greens like this since I was in Louisiana. Oh, I was 12 years great. old. So those are the responses. So then it's like, okay, so it is about access. If you give it to them, you know what I'm saying, and become something that's normal mm-hmm. to them. That's the thing is that unhealthy food is very yeah. normal in these communities now. So where you see Mario's at, as soon as you step out, you turn left and you got McDonald's, Jack in the Box, Starbucks, and Del Taco. You go across the street, you got Taco Bell, Panda Express, <laughs> you know. So it's like, okay, well, I just got more unhealthy options. And they're cheaper too, which is so, in the heading and, and, and that I think a part of it is also just kind of thinking long term. So as we wrap up, thank you for sharing like all your journey. It's been really interesting and, and inspiring. And I think it's going to be super helpful for our audience to hear all about it. And I'm wondering, you've talked a little bit about the challenges, but like, what has you hopeful? You're thinking out maybe just 12 months out, you've got projects in the works. You mentioned some work that you're, you're doing with Ali as well, which is promising, you know, where are you seeing the most hope in terms of like moving the needle forward and then getting to where this vision of where you think it can be? So our biggest project right now is converting this grocery store into vertical grocery yeah. farm. I mean, it's been a decrepit grocery store, you know, in the community for almost 30 years. We've been fortunate to have owners that also see that. I mean, they own the store, but they also recognize, that, hey, we're not part of this community. Yeah. And so we're not part, we don't know how to feed you guys. And they're being very candid about that. We don't know what your needs are. We don't know what your mm-hmm. wants are. It's yeah. different, you know? And so their willingness to let us come in and now take over yeah. that store gives us a very big platform to really change the dynamics of food deserts and food security by developing a model, a solution yeah. that you can plug and play this in any community because it has, it's not just about putting in a store. It's one, it's making that store very sustainable, but it's also an opportunity to train the community in an industry where it's not just a farm, but now it's the operation of an actual revenue generating mm-hmm. business that they all take part in, that they're all participating yeah. in, that they all have a vested interest and in ownership in, because now there's something that they yeah. built. And I think that's a perspective that hasn't been done in these communities. So there's not, there haven't been any real internal solutions. And the reason why there have been a lot of internal solutions, because they don't have a lot of outside knowledge. The ones in these communities, they don't, what CEA is. They don't even know what that term, they don't even know what that term means. They don't understand what controlled environment agriculture is. They have a, they don't know, they understand the difference between, you know, hydroponics and aquaponics and aeroponics, you know, and hybrids. They don't understand that. But it's, I look at it as like, I don't care if you, you know, if I go to South America and I go to some pygmies in the jungle and I bring them a cell phone and I come back a year later, their ability to communicate and how they talk to me is going to be very yes. different. Yes, right. That's true. I look at that being the same way in these communities. If you give them the tools yeah. and the knowledge that it'll help them develop their own direction. Yeah. So I think it's just that's what they need. They don't need me or somebody else to come in and fix their yeah. problem. They need the tools and mechanisms to figure out how to fix their problems of course, for themselves. Yeah, yeah teach a man to fish, right? Teach yeah. a man to fish. Like you might want to go get crappie. He might want to go <laughs> get catfish. You know, he might want to go yeah. shark fishing. But they all understand 
the benefit of a fishing yeah. pole now. Yes. Yeah. The size, you know, it might be a different size. It might be a different yeah. weight. It might have a different lure on it, but they know how to apply that to whatever situation that they're yeah. in at that time. Though. That's the difference. And so with the initiatives you have in place, you feel hopeful that over, you know, it'll be slow in the beginning. And to your point, this is new to a lot of folks and new to communities, new to generations. But, you know, do you feel hopeful that you're on, on the right path? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. That conference really opened our eyes up to the fact that, you know, and it really opened the city's eyes up. I'm like, okay, hey, it might be yeah. on or something. They, if you have this many people interested in what they're mm-hmm. talking about, out of kind of out of nowhere, then that might be something we might want to, you know, kind of stand behind. And so that's where our conversations are right now is that, you know, we're going to do something out here that's going to force you to work with us. <laughs> because you're better off playing what is in planning. Yeah. It's like, hey, we're going to do, we're just going to do the right thing. And it's, and I think us being able to show that and show the activity that we're doing without anything from you, we haven't got any funding for any, yeah. from anybody. We've been doing this all grassroots, mm-hmm. all from ourselves. Hopefully our goal is to say that our work that we're doing would then give us the funding that we need to do it better and bigger. So that's a great segue because what I've been doing at the end of these conversations is leaving a, a few minutes for the guests because of the audience, because it's folks, it's essentially all the founders, CEOs, of vertical farming companies, your colleagues in the space, people who are interested in this industry, whether entering this industry or who have been like, quote unquote, veterans. I mean, it's still relatively new. So what message do you have? I mean, this is a platform I want to make available to you. Like if you had a message for folks in the vertical farming, your peers in the space, any potential or future partners, floor is yours for that. Come to Vegas. <laughs> Taylor Swift, Usher, they all got residencies out here. So what we're doing is offering residency to the industry here in Las Vegas. I mean, this is the largest food desert in the country. And I think that this could be almost a mecca. We want to create an agri-tech mm-hmm. valley, similar to Silicon yeah. Valley, where this is home to a lot of these large companies to start to deploy. We help with the training. We help with, you know, the source and we help with getting your products out there and making people more aware of your products. We're not married to anything. Mm-hmm. We're not married to anybody. We're married to the technology and we're married to the output of agriculture and good yeah. food. And that's where I think it gives, you know, like most organizations, you know, they all have this social initiative that they want to put. Let us be that social initiative. Yeah. Let us be that 1% that you dedicate to solving a particular mm-hmm. problem. We share in that, we share that data you know, you take that back. Now you have more comprehensive data on how to address different issues that you're working on. But I think our value here is the fact that we're going to do the work. You know, we're very active. You know, we don't ask a lot of questions. You know, we just feel that, hey, there's a need, there's a demand, and then there's a way to supply the demand. So it's just very simple, supply and demand. And then we also working at, you know, our thing is like, hey, we tackle it, we chase different money. We chase the money of people who don't normally have access, who you think don't have money, but really, you know, these communities have trillion dollar buying Mm -hmm. power. So that's those things that we tap into. And so in order to really pull that off and really to make this CEA successful is about partnering, not just at the big level, but also at the little level by supporting these smaller farms, both with your technology, with your knowledge to make them more resilient, make them more viable and really feed into actually participating in solving a solution. Well, Eric, I'm really grateful that we were got connected. I'm so happy that you took the initiative to kind of speak up for the voices that are unheard, especially at the conference. 
you know, shout out to Suzanne, who's done a great job with the conference. They've, I think they've doubled the size of it since last Absolutely. year. And, and just also for the organizers to be aware that this is something and to recognize that this wasn't being addressed. And it's something that I'm glad they gave you the platform of the panel. And I think and we're having this conversation because of it. And I'm sure there's been a ton of follow-up conversations because of it as well. So I applaud you for kind of being the boots on the ground and speaking up, you know, for the unheard voices, right? Because we need more people like you that are doing that because communities may not realize that there's a need there or what the opportunities exist out there, like vertical farming that can address a small part of the problem. And I think what you're doing is really admirable. Your journey puts you at the right place at the right time with the right technology and the right experience you know, to, to kind Absolutely. of be the right person to spearhead this. So greensideup.farm for folks to get connected. We'll make sure we have your LinkedIn as well. Any other place you want to send folks to learn more or connect with you? Greensideup.farm. Also, one last tip, we're partnering up with Indoor Ag for next year's okay. conference. So there'll be a second, there'll be another tour. We want to try to make this an annual yeah. tour. But the goal with this tour is to be able to see what we've been able to accomplish yes. in a year. Yeah, and I'm sure there's a Greenside Up Farm socials where people can see the progress as well, right? Yeah. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> okay. So Instagram, Facebook, okay, we're I'm everywhere. Sure we'll list all those in the show notes. I appreciate your time. Absolutely. Thank you. Special thanks again to Alaric for coming on the show and sharing his story. Very inspiring, very motivational. So excited to see the work that they're doing there in Las Vegas. I can't wait to go back again for Indoor AgCon and just get the latest update. So much will have changed in a year. And hopefully I may even be able to make it there before then, but excited to follow their progress. As always, full show notes available at verticalfarmingpodcast.com. Special thanks to our Season 8 title sponsor, Cultivated. If you're looking to a vertical farm and don't know where to start or which technology would suit your needs, reach out to them today. And best of all, their service is free because they work on behalf of their partners. Learn more at cultivated.com, and that's spelled C-U-L-T-I-V-A-T-D.com. Just leave out that last E. Podcast production marketing provided by Fullcast. Learn more about how a podcast could be helpful for you and your brand at fullcast.co. As a reminder... If you enjoyed this episode or past episodes and you have yet to leave us a rating or review, shame on you. You should be doing that right now. <laughs> you should be pausing this episode. You should be going over to ratethispodcast.com forward slash VFP and do that as nothing would please me more to read that out on a future episode. Tune in next episode for a conversation with yet another fascinating leader from the world of vertical farming. This time it's Alberto Aguilar of Planta Food. Super excited to share their inspiring story and we got connected at indoor agcon courtesy of the team at cultivated that's a really great episode high energy from alberto until we meet again here's to your health thanks for listening to read the full show notes for this episode which includes any links mentioned in the episode as well as a full show transcription visit verticalfarmingpodcast.com there you can sign up for our email list to be notified when new episodes are published